Hello, and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Christine Walker, Editor of Learning Disability Practice. In this episode, we're looking at caring for people with learning disabilities and autism and why it's becoming all nurses' business rather than just that of the specialist learning disability nurse. In the NHS in England, it's piloting the Oliver McGowan mandatory training in learning disability and autism, and this could be rolled out next year. The aim is to improve all NHS health and social care staff's understanding of the needs of autistic people and those with a learning disability. The background is some of the institutional failures of care that have been well publicised, such as the Winterbourne View private hospital scandal of 10 years ago. Today I'm joined by learning disability nurses Jim Blair and Loretta Ofulu, who first met each other when Jim nursed Loretta's severely autistic son, Otito. The two made a connection which led to a major change in Loretta's life, which she'll tell you about. It also changed Atito's, and you will hear about some of the strategies that you as a nurse can consider using when caring for someone with a learning disability and or autism. We'll also help to explain some of the sometimes baffling terminology used in this area, including what does making reasonable adjustments mean? And what is diagnostic overshadowing? Welcome, Jim and Loretta. Hi, hi, Chris. Hi, Loretta. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, well, likewise. Good to hear from you. So, uh, Jim, can you tell me um, what do you think about this mandatory training that's being piloted and why it's necessary? Well, I think there's a, it's, it's very, very important. And I think the, the significant issue here also is that learning disability and autism are not the same. Um, they are not interchangeable as often is uh, perceived at the moment. And I hope very much that this training will clearly identify that people with a learning disability that do not have autism are not the same as people who have autism and do not have a learning disability. Their needs are very, very different. So the training must be very clear about that. And services that provide um, the training need to make sure that there is a clear distinction between autism and a learning disability. They are not interchangeable terms. They are two separate things. They, people face very different challenges, um, whoever they are. And we all have challenges in our life and we all need support. But it is important not to get these two um, groups of individuals because everybody's an individual and everyone's unique but it's very important not to get them confused it's also really important for learning disability nurses in particular who seem to be um, working in fields that are and or learning disability to be very clear about their own role and structure within uh, working with people with autism that don't have a learning disability are they in fact the right people in the right time with the right skill sets to actually provide support for people who don't have a learning disability but have autism that is a significant challenge um, but I think in terms of the training aspect what's really important is that people are aware of different people's needs the challenges they face and what we've seen within uh, the things that you raised earlier in Winterbourne View and elsewhere is that there really is still such a paramount need to get things right for people and to tune into people's frequency and to understand the challenges that they face and enable them to have healthier, happier futures working alongside with and for them and not seeing the issues that people face as negative problems that can't be solved because everybody has challenges, everyone is different and we all need supports at different times in our lives. But somehow, um, in many ways in our society, People with a learning disability are pushed 
um, far to the to the, the bottom of the pile, if you like, rather than being seen as having equal worth as other people. Just because somebody communicates in a different way, maybe speaks verbally or non-verbally, um, but gestures um, nonetheless, they have the same much as much worth as anybody else. And in fact, you mentioned a Tito. A Tito had autism as well as a learning disability, not just autism, and he. Um, brought great joy to the family and, and as you'll hear later on about how he's helped change the future for both his parents and in fact Ortito lives on through his parents. So Jim what are we I mentioned earlier about reasonable adjustments and diagnostic overshadowing what what do they mean in practice? Yeah I mean I think diagnostic overshadowing is is a certainly a hidden um, problem and has without doubt led to um, very poor care and has led certainly to also the avoidable deaths that people with the learning disability have been exposed to over the years um, and have resulted in take, them taking their last breaths um, when they could have been avoided and could still be um, living their lives. So diagnostic overshadowing, put simply, is it's a bit like, um, I think the best way to describe it is I'm a white guy who's 53 and I wear glasses. And I live in North London. If I go and smack my head against the wall, you don't think, well, that's just what white guys who are 53 who wear glasses and live in North London. That's what they do. Um, no, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But you'd look beyond that, wouldn't you? You'd think about what's going on internally for Jim, if that's how he's behaving. But throw in the learning disability and it's still um, anybody of any ethnicity that, that the ethnicity isn't the issue here it's just I was giving my own personal example but say it's another person who is also called Jim but the difference is they've got a learning disability it's the learning disability then blinds people to actually look beyond that and that's also true of, of a great many other individuals including those who have autism without a learning disability but the profiles as I said earlier are different autism and learning disability are not interchangeable and I think there's a great deal of confusion um, nationally around this. And what about reasonable adjustments? What does, we hear this all the time, making reasonable adjustments. What does that mean if you're not a learning disability nurse, you're working in a, yeah. an acute setting? What, what, what sort of things should be you be looking out for? Well, a reasonable adjustment, uh, Chris, is they're, they're really often very simple things. The small things make big differences to people's lives. It is about, as I said, tuning into people's frequency that we, we talked about earlier. And under the Equality Act of 2010, there is a duty, um, a legal duty for people to make adjustments in order for people to access the services that they need in a way that they can in a timely and effective way. So examples might be um, using dimmer switches that take out the visual noise that light give to people um, with learning disabilities um, or those that may be autistic. Now, Jim, in the past, there's been criticism, um, outdated and probably not ever warranted, but that it's learning disability nursing is not real nursing. So why do you feel, and I know you feel this very strongly, that actually learning disability nursing has a lot to offer other fields of practice and there's a lot that other nurses can learn from learning disability nurses? I think learning disability nursing is a really pure form of nursing. And I think all nursing is fabulous and it's all about people. But learning to be nursing in its essence has had a challenge to it in terms of what it is, what it's for, who it's working for and who are they working with. And one of the current challenges at the moment is, as I just said, about learning to be nurses working with people that don't have a learning disability and that people with, with autism that don't have a learning disability should 
they be doing that? And are they moving outside of their scope of practice and scope of competence? And also, what does that mean then for those with a learning disability that aren't receiving the service of a learning disability nurse because that nurse is being taken um, to support someone who doesn't have a learning disability but has autism? And that just, aside, the, the five key things that learning disability nurses must do, and I think the problem is it's often about what does a learning disability nurse do? We've talked a bit about um, diagnostic overshadowing and reasonable adjustments. That's a key part. So if you imagine the core five things that learning disability nurses need to do, and it is like a hand, and the thumb is addressing diagnostic overshadowing and uh, adapting is making reasonable adjustments similar to the light switch similar to hospital passports getting rid of visiting times um, making adaptations so that people can be seen in their own room in their own places at the right time in the right way with those who support and know them best um, then it is about ensuring that the health issues that people with learning disabilities face are clearly addressed and identified and uh, adapted to meet those individual needs and at the center of the hand if you like is the idea that People with learning disabilities and their families know them best, so should be involved directly in care evolution, care delivery, and also in the quality monitoring, and something we'll, we'll touch on later on in terms of what needs to happen nationally to get things right. That is absolutely vital so that we serve the people who know uh, those best and, and those individuals best, and we get them involved in evolving the care. And if we don't do that, we won't get things right. Learning disability nurses are very good at doing that. And the fourth element is about education in action, modelling how to get things right with and for our colleagues, demonstrating the skills, values and attitudes and knowledge base of the learning disability nurse in order to assist people to tune into someone's frequency. It's not always easy and it's not a criticism of other colleagues at all. It is that specialisms are important and they're important for very key reasons that if you don't have specialists, you lack the knowledge that may be required to work with that person and then the fifth element if you like the little finger of the hand is a key acute understanding of the mental capacity act the equality act the human rights act and um the uh mental health act and understanding those elements and how they interplay in order to enable people to have good healthy happier lives that's the cornerstone of a learning disability nurse wherever you're working whatever setting whatever skills levels you're at and in whatever leadership role you're in. And we are all leaders wherever we are within our organisations, some at a more elevated level, but everybody is shaping the futures and should do so with and for people with a learning disability. And that's the core of what I think learning disability nurses should and need to be doing to enhance and save the lives of people with learning disabilities. The training that's going to be available presumably is going to raise much more awareness. That's the idea of the needs of people with learning disabilities, because it presumably is quite daunting if you're somebody who hasn't had to um, care for somebody with autism or learning disability. And you're working in a setting where you suddenly are encountering that kind of, you know, that's a service user who may come in who who you, you perhaps you have no idea really quite how to, to deal with and you're not able to call on the services of a learning disability nurse. But presumably this training is trying to raise awareness of some of the things that you need to take into consideration. I think so. And I very much hope that the training um, involves with, with direct practical solutions to challenging situations, innovative, innovative ideas that can demonstrate real value uh, directly to the individual and, and focusing very much on what can be done rather than over being theoretical um, 
it needs to be able to be demonstrating people how to get things right, um, why those methods work and in what ways they work best with and for the person. And it really needs to have people um, with lived experience, be it parental or, or actually uh, having a learning discipline themselves right at the centre of those training sessions. And it should be throughout all settings and in every area of, of uh, education, health and social care settings. It's not just about health providers, it is about everybody. Okay, well, let's bring Loretta in now. Um, welcome, Loretta. Thank uh, you. Jim has uh, described um, uh, the, the changes that um, may come about as a result of this training. Um, do you want to maybe discuss, um, you and Jim, just tell us a little bit about how you met and um, uh, your experiences? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Otito, my son, uh, was in extreme pain while admitted at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and he had a severe to acute pancreatitis. And some adults I met on the ward had experienced, who had experienced pancreatitis, often described it as excruciating. But uh, Otito had it, and he did not cry. He was autistic and nonverbal, and he would withdraw and spend most of the time curled up in a fetal position, grinding his teeth. And to staff, he looked calm, perhaps a bit distressed, but not in excruciating pain. And as a parent, I knew my son was in agony, but his autism and of course the being learning disabled meant that he understood and engaged with the world in a completely different way. And he was non-verbal as well. I think Jean mentioned something about people communicating verbally or non-verbally. And that meant he could not tell us either how he was feeling. And, but this, this did not mean that he was not communicating something. But the thing was, even though he was in pain, staff could not justify the need to administer the level of pain relief that my interpretation of Otito's pain suggested. So I, I understood this, but I needed to help my son. And that was how I met Jim. Enter Jim into the picture and after hitting every brick wall available, the care was transformed, not just because he was Jim and he's brilliant, but because he was a learning disability nurse. He tailored the pain assessment tools that were brought and suddenly Otito's peculiar expressions counted significantly and being quiet and withdrawn ranked very high, high enough for those scores to be bumped up. And in no time, the team had the justification they needed to give him the pain relief that was needed to for my son to be more comfortable. And as you can imagine, the role of the learning disability nurse came through there for us. We were able to use the tools that he had, like in his toolbox as a learning disability nurse, which were those very um, tailored assessment tools that recognized and were adaptable to the personality of my son. So even though he was closest to care and the staff loved him and they wanted to help him, but because they did not have that understanding of his needs, it was difficult to justify the, the level of pain relief. And this is the experience of many people who have additional needs, especially when they have learning disabilities or autism, when they communicate differently. And I think that this is one of the reasons why the, the training program will be very good, because it would raise the awareness for people who don't have that training to at least have that let's call it sixth sense, to know that something something's going on here and maybe trigger the need for a referral to the specialist nurse. 
And Jim, what was it like when you first met Loretta? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 quite incredible uh, to think about it because it was um, it was an ordinary day really for me, um, uh, but it became extraordinary because within uh, with a few minutes of meeting uh, Loretta, I sort of talked to her about how um, Otito. It was very hard for people to read his uh, verbal, his visual signs, i.e. he didn't make m- many sort of facial expressions in terms of that's pain, that's not pain. But what we did, uh, as you remember, Loretta, yeah. we, we you recorded on your um, phone. Do you remember the videos? Yes. yes. And um, that enabled us to look at because you couldn't see it with the naked eye. And this is the other thing about. For, for those listening, thinking about how you make reasonable adjustments and how you can get it right for somebody who is, uh, like Loretta just said, Ortito was quite silent. He looked really relatively comfortable in some ways. Um, and it was hard to detect for, for, for our colleagues really how uh, things were going uh, not so well for him in terms of levels of pain mm-hmm. until he was really, really in, in that sort of acute phase of pain. So what we did is we looked at the, the Loretta videoed. And that meant, obviously, the video is retained on her phone. So there's no if anybody out there is worrying about, um, you know, data protection and all of that. Well, I never had the data. Neither did anybody in the hospital. It was all always owned by Loretta. But what we looked at was we could frame by frame see, oh, that's where the change is. OK, what can we do at that point rather than wait until he gets to a, a really acute phase of pain? And the changes were really quite subtle. It was a matter of eye movement, wasn't it, at times, Loretta? Yes, it um, and, and really sort of just slowing it down and thinking, right, that's it. That's the moment. So if you intervene, then you can give them the pain relief at that at that point, um, a lower level pain relief than you would have done if you'd gone to the extreme pain. Mm. And also the other thing is that the, having the pain that he was getting and the relief that he was being given through medication, it had quite a sedative effect on, on Otito. So he really didn't engage. And when you think... Um, he was already having a life limiting condition and he was then not more sedated than he would be otherwise. It enabled that intervention, enabled him to have a better interaction with um, his his mother and, and his father and his, his brother when his brother was able to come in as well. So it enabled him to have a, a better quality of life and experience than he otherwise would have had, I think. Yeah. And I think another thing that is crucial is, for example, in our case, you never know when you're making this little little changes that make a big difference in the fa- in the lives of the family, that that could be you gifting them that opportunity to be with that child or that person. Because like in our case, Otito passed away afterwards and that became the, the final year with him. After having had that better pain management, he was able to be a boy again and able to create those memories with us that we treasure forever now. Yeah, and I think it's really, really important for listeners to realise that that um, Loretta, who, as you heard, is in a final year of being a learning disability nursing student, and her husband, uh, Jerry, is in the second year of being a learning disability nurse. But I remember a conversation with you, Loretta, at some yeah. point about you saying that you felt nurses were enemies, and in fact, all health professionals at, at times. And I just sat and listened to you. I mean, I'd heard that from many families before, and I've always sort of just been... Uh, very mindful that actually we as professionals see just a little glimmer of light and unfortunately some professionals think that that glimmer of light means that they have all the knowledge in the world and that they can call themselves super experts or whatever they like to call themselves but that's just not right the majority um, we know such a small amount we can gain the full picture only 
only if we work with the families and the person themselves. And sadly, in, in health systems and health structures and in social care and education, that still is often sadly lacking. Yeah, and that's why we always push for our numbers and uh, to have more learning disability nurses working in any setting at all, because people who have learning disabilities or autism or any other conditions that might impact on their uh, the additional needs they have, they're living longer, they're having more life chances now, and they, they can access any service at all. So it makes such a big difference when we have learning disabilities, being able to to work in so many different settings, because they are the ones like Jim mentioned earlier, who usually have that extra skill and extra ability to tune into those unique needs of people who have additional needs like learning disabilities. Mm. So, Loretta, why did you become a learning disability nurse? Because, I mean, we had conversations after Otito's death um, yes. about the things that you would like to um, do, because yes. you said to me, um, I'm re-entering the world that you inhabit, Jim, but um, it's not the world that I left when I had Otito because I then had a, dis a learned disabled child who had autism, who had a life uh, limiting condition, yeah. who then uh, obviously died. And um, you re-entered a world in which you are a bereaved parent of, yeah. of, of someone like uh, Otito. So how did you end up coming to that mindset of having previously seen nurses as and other health professionals we talked about as enemies into turning that around. So for yourself, firstly, why did you become a learning disability nurse? And why do you think Jerry also decided that, that, you know, this is a path for him? Because, you know, it's really fascinating, I think, for people to hear this. I think it's interesting. You're making me reflect now, because um, when I cared for Otito as his mom, I had to adapt my whole life to make me cope with the demands of caring for him. And it was very difficult. I remember the first day I was told about the diagnosis of propionic acidemia. It changed our whole life forever. And we were set on a learning journey. We learned as much as we could to equip ourselves individually and collectively, that's Jerry and me, to support Otito. And in 2016, when he was admitted for one year and while resident with him in the hospital, I met many families. It was a privilege to meet so many families but many of them were not coping very well. And so in my spare time, I shared tips about how things that worked for my family that they could try. And some of them worked for them. And we formed like a little bit of a community in hospital because I stayed the whole year with Otito at Gosh. And following his death in 2017, I felt like I had all these skills, but no Otito to continue with, like I told you. And I knew no longer how to work the usual work in the financial services that I was doing before I had Otito. And it just made sense for me and for my family for us to train, because as one who values standards and I knew that nursing would give me the opportunity going for the training to acquire the theoretical underpinnings to keep families safe, even though I was supporting them. Because the thing is that when families have unique needs, they have children or even loved ones with additional needs, learning disabilities, autism or any other needs. They are, it's very difficult for people to appreciate. And at times they appear very uncooperative. But that's usually because of the underlying family needs that go beyond the sick person or sick child, like in our case. And this was the main thing behind my going into train as a learning disability nurse. And like you, Jim, you inspired me, as I always say, even though you're very humble and you won't like me to say that, I know. But I really wanted to be that person that will be able to, while supporting a family, identify those needs 
be able to make reasonable adjustments for them because I knew firsthand how what difference that made for me and my family and how to be able to support them better. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Uh, thank you very much for your kind words. Yeah, I, it's just great. I mean, I think what, what's really important is um, having been your son's uh, consultant learning disability nurse and having worked with you in that setting and gone through a little bit of the, the journey with you, there's no way I uh, experienced anywhere anything at all like um, what you and Jerry and Marley felt in, in losing Otito. But I got a glimmer of it. And what I found was was how enabling you both were as parents but also as Marley in terms of the fact that you were not going to to just leave Otito's death as a sad moment in life which of course it is horrendous and and I can't you can't words can't express that but I think what what you did with it is you gave Otito's life a further power beyond his death in terms of you coming into learning to nursing and obviously Marley as well and I think that's something that's really powerful. And I think many parents become the best and strongest advocates for learning disability nurses. And I think it's really when you tap into the experiences of people like yourself and people with learning disabilities and hear what they've actually say about why it's important to have learning disability nurses and what we do with and for them, that is so, so important. And we've spoken about the idea for um, real change to happen. And um, I'm of the opinion um, that there is only real one way um, and I, I, otherwise I see no opportunity for significant embedded change to really occur unless unless this happens. This is something I've been building over the last uh, few years with, with Scott Watkin who is a, a chap who has a learning disability and um, who was uh, the co-national director for learning disabilities um, you know about 11-12 years ago now in fact um, and that role never was replaced. But one of the things we've, we've 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 talked about within that is a structure for change. And I'm just going to outline it for for those listening. So this is the option, and I see it uh, as do others now as a growing movement of it as really the only powerful solution about changing and shifting the balance of power away from professionals of all sorts. It is about having, like Scott, as a co-national director, having three co-national directors for learning disabilities. Now, you could replicate this, have three co-national directors for autism. As I said before, autism and learning disability is not interchangeable in terms of if you don't have an if you don't have a learning disability and you have autism without a learning disability, your needs are very different from those who have autism and a learning disability or have learning disability on their own. So this type of model could be used for many people. It could be used for, for people, uh, population groups such as those with diabetes, heart conditions, whatever you want to look at. But in terms of this particular issue, three co-national directors for learning disabilities. One, an individual with a learning disability. Two, an individual um, who is a parent or, or a family member. So it could be a parent or a sibling. And then the third, should be a professional. Automatically, you can see that the shift of power has gone from being one national director who is somebody without a learning disability, um, which is often the model that's seen, not just in this country, but elsewhere, to three that are co-national directors. And two of them are people with living experience or parental sibling experience. So that's a big shift in power. The other thing about that is, how do we ensure that they can be effective and really embed the root changes that we know, because we do know 
that those with, with parental and living experience are by far the best to be building and shaping the future of services than people like myself. I don't have a learning disability and my child doesn't have a learning disability. So my knowledge is not as in-depth, though important, it is not um, without the other involvements, it is of not as much worth at all. So the quality monitoring improvement panel that we're talking about that would sit within this new structure would be made up of 51% people with a learning disability, 34% family members, be it parental or siblings or other relatives, and 15% professionals. So if you say that the panel, let's say, is out of 10, you've got eight out of 10. Yes, 80% of that panel is made up of who it should be made up for, those with living experience. Those are real, meaningful knowledge Practical awareness and 24-7, 365 days a year knowledge about how things should be. And that panel should be looking at planning, how services should be, how they could be, how they need to be, developing how those services should be created, involved in the training, not just the training that we've heard here in terms of the mandatory training that's taking place, but involved in ongoing training that's tailored towards that service and those areas of practice where things might be of most concern and also have a monitoring role, checking up on whether these things are really developing the quality and delivering what they need to deliver in a way that they should, that meets the individual needs uh, of, of people with a learning disability and improving the quality and ensuring that health and well-being measures are really taking place for and with individuals. The ideas model that, that actually how does this actually happen? Well, the idea frame, ideas solution model is you have what I is for information gathering. The D is for decisions and design. E is for engagement and involvement. A actions and the S is solutions. solutions. This must be done in order to build a, a better, safer, healthier, happier future to stop avoidable deaths, poor outcomes and episodes like we've had with COVID with the extreme uh, higher numbers of deaths of people with learning disabilities as opposed to others in the population. Now, with this, you gain responsibility, accountability and real outcome. That's what we need to see happen. I agree with you completely that um, we need that representation of people who are actually experiencing it experiencing some of the issues we described, either as um, the patients as, or clients themselves or the families. And it just reminds me, I know you, you mentioned earlier that I'm not in my third year anymore, Jim. I finished that. I'm doing my specialist community public health nursing training, a, a big mouthful training. Oh, you see. Yeah. <laughs> Time goes too quickly for me. <laughs> and um, in that training, there's something that comes out of it that is very applicable to what you're saying. And that's about building community capacity. And the way we build capacity, first of all, is to define what the community is. And in this regard, we refer to those families and people who have learning disabilities as being significant, uh, a significant part of that community. And in order to make change to be very effective and to continue, it's important that people who are part of the community are 
totally involved with that change because it gives you a broader perspective of their needs and especially given the reality of the NHS and resource constraints, it becomes very crucial when certain decisions need to be made because if we have people who are actually affected by the issues within the decision making, it's easier to have a broader perspective and it's easier for them to come out feeling like they have a solution that works for them. And this is one of the reasons why I agree with you, Jim, that people with learning disabilities, their families should be a significant or should make up a significant fraction of those who would be making those decisions. Of course, we need the, the professionals because the professionals will help to guide as well and to bring more understanding about the things that need to be done and to help that process to be more effective. But we can't lose sight of the importance of um, the key players, as it were, within this um, particular um, community that we describe. OK, well, um, Loretta and Jim, um, we're out of time, um, but that was a fascinating discussion. I wish you all the best with the plan, Jim. It sounds, um, it sounds a great plan. <laughs> well, we have to keep going on. We'll, 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 um, we'll, we'll follow that as, um, as it develops. So thank you very much, uh, Loretta and Jim, uh, for your time. You. To, and thank you, listeners. And um, hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode and it's given you a glimpse into the world of uh, caring for people with learning disabilities and, and autism. And thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that all the resources connected with this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on any episodes you may have missed or simply want to play back. And we greatly appreciate any feedback, so please do rate or review us on Apple or Spotify podcasts, which will also help other people to find us.